Hello humans of triathlon and welcome back or welcome to the hot podcast where we bring you the ordinary but extraordinary world of triathlon one human one story at a time with the aim to inspire and to celebrate this life-changing sport and its humans through real authentic raw and enjoyable conversations with triathletes from around the globe and from all walks of life I'm Swapnil Chauhan here with my co-host Charles Hunk and Radmom Robin along with another amazing guest. So back in the year 1980, our guest today competed on his first full-distance Ironman triathlon. It was actually the Ironman World Championships. He would be the last one to be held in the island of Oahu, where Honolulu is, before it moved to the now classic Kona location in the Big Island. Not only he finished the race, he actually, you know what, he won the race. So in 1980, not only he became the Ironman world champion, but he also beat the previous year's win time by nearly two hours. Also, the guy who came in second place after him got to the finish line one full hour after our guest. So as you can slightly imagine, we have a very special guest for you tonight. To give you a rough idea, if this podcast was called Humans of Basketball, we would be bringing you none other than Michael Jordan himself. There are only two men in the world who have won the Ironman World Championship this many times in history. It's just ridiculous, unbelievable. Both were born in January. Both are Capricorn, again, like me, you know. I can feel the strong connection here already. <laughs> and these two men were also the main characters of this epic clash called by the press the Iron War, which came to its climax at the Ironman World Championships in 1989, which is still considered the best Kona race of all time. So guess what? Today's Humans of Triathlon podcast guest is one of them. Actually, this episode doesn't really fit our Humans of Triathlon podcast. To be fair, it would have been better placed on our sister podcast, Aliens of Triathlon, because this man is certainly not human. So without further ado, tonight in the hot podcast, we bring you our first ever professional triathlete guest, the six-time Ironman world champion and the first ever inductee into the Ironman Hall of Fame, also known as the man, please welcome the one and only Mr. Dave Scott. Welcome, Dave. Well, thank you for having me. Yeah, thank you. That was kind of a grand and glorious introduction. That, uh, <laughs> kind of went on forever. I was wondering what you're going to cut it off. But, uh, I appreciate you digging back in the history of time and uh, knowing that I'm 26 years older than you. That's uh, that is kind of encouraging, but. Uh, uh, yeah, there's a lot of history in the sport, and I just kind of fell into it uh, way back when. So, a uh, pleasure being a part of your your show and and being on uh, your Humans of Triathlon. I, I'm not an alien, so I I feel like I'm <laughs> still in that category. But thank you. It, no, it's it's totally our honor to have you on the show. Like Charles mentioned, you're the first pro and first Ironman World Champ to come on. So we've obviously been really excited and looking forward to this. And I mean, I'm not even kidding, like I was telling you before we started recording that um, it's around 3 a.m. right now where I am in India. And my plan was to head to bed early so I could wake up for this. 
I did get into bed early but wasn't able to sleep one bit because I was just both excited and nervous for this. <laughs> so I literally didn't sleep. But I, I know it's going to be totally worth it. So thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, you're welcome. I hope the you drink a lot of coffee. Swap meals pulled an all-nighter there. <laughs> All right. So, you know, for this episode, we're going to have two areas of focus. One being your journey as an athlete. And the second, your training and racing insights as a coach. And so we sent out a poll to our audience of which which part they'd be more keen on hearing from you. And there was almost a 50-50 split. So we'll try and spend an equal amount of time on both of them. And I'm sure there'll be some overlapping here and there, which is fine. So to get things going, Dave, um, would love to hear your origin story because there's that saying, right, that every pro was once an amateur, which is very true, obviously. Like no one's born a world champion, right? So I think it would just be really encouraging for the people listening to hear how you were just this Audrey guy who then grew and developed himself into the athlete you went on to become. Well, I, I, I wasn't an ordinary, uh, ordinary kid growing up. I did a lot of different sports. Uh, my dad was a, a professor. He was an engineer. Uh, my mom was a, a homemaker. I had two sisters, and uh, we were kind of immersed in lots of different sports. I played basketball and ping pong, and I didn't play soccer. I played uh, American football for a couple of years when I was in high school, and uh, prior to that, uh, I was in a swimming program. I started that when I was uh, eight years old, just a local swim club program. Uh, never, as the years went by, I always just rode a bike. And so that was my mode of transportation, uh, even at an early age and all, all the way through high school and college and beyond. So <clears throat> going through high school, I actually played four years of basketball and uh, four years of swimming. And I gave up my uh, illustrious football career and started playing water polo uh, when I had two years left in my high school, junior and senior years. And I have moved into the college ranks. I went to school at UC Davis, uh, which is my hometown. So I only had to go about a kilometer away to the uh, swim pool and the lecture halls. Right. And I uh, was a water polo player there four years. I was all American in water polo and, um, and I swam uh, Division Two, and in the states, Division One is the is the cream of the crop. So I was a, I was a good water polo player. We played against Division One athletes, but as far as my swimming, I my stroke mechanics are pretty appalling, and uh, <laughs> they're they're a little bit better than my running biomechanics. But nothing nothing looks terribly fluid. I was just uh, kind of a strong guy and seemed to be more adept at open water swims, which I started doing in my last year of college. I began to coach a master swim program, and my coaching roots really started before that. I was around 15 and started teaching swimming, and by 19, I started this master swim program. Oh, wow. Uh, which grew from about eight people to 400 people uh, in four years. And I had 10 one-hour workouts and had assistant coaches. So there seemed to be an interest <laughs> with older folks swimming. I had actually some of my professors in my class. And I thought, well, some of these professors are really slow. I'm giving them a set of uh, 850s. And they just looked at me totally befuddled. And I said, well, you're talking to me about the Krebs cycle. 
uh, in class. I think that's what's funny, but 850 is too complex. So I was able to get back and get back, give back and also get back to them as well. But I carried on my um, athletic career through college and I always had kind of a, a, a seed to kind of push myself. I, to a fault, I, I did this in college and really got to a point where I was quite stale and recognized the symptoms years later as a coach called overreaching. And um, I would just burn myself out. And so at the outset of the year, I was always in great shape. By the end of the year, I was completely annihilated. Mm-hmm. And I seemed to follow this pattern. But I got a glimpse of doing these multi-sport races. So I finished college in 1976. And uh, in coaching this master's team, we started entering uh, just unusual events. They didn't really have a name for them. There was swim bike events, uh, swim run, which is obviously in our vernacular today. And I took a group down to San Francisco, which is about 120K away. And there was a triathlon, but it wasn't called triathlon. Hmm. And this was my first one. It was in 1976 in November. So uh, quite a while back, if you do the math on this, um, 42 years ago, wow. and uh, there were no, uh, you know, no bike racks, no aid stations, no police. There wasn't <laughs> anything, um, barely a buoy in the water. The, the order of the event uh, was turned around. We started off with a roughly nine mile, 15 K ride through the streets of San Francisco. And again, when we went through the, through San Francisco at the time, uh, it was a very dilapidated area. Now it's a real tourist area called the Embarcadero. <laughs> and I remember remember the um, the director of the event. It's, it's a very loose term because there wasn't any directorship. His name was Buck Swanick, ex-Marine. And the daytime temperature was uh, in the mid-50s. So it was about 13 degrees. And the water temperature was about the same. Uh, no wetsuits. Mm-hmm. So they started off with a 15K ride, and then I wasn't really planning to run. I was having some knee issues. I started to run when I was in college playing water polo as a way to enhance my fitness and, and became a fairly good uh, runner, at least in comparison to my water polo mates, which wasn't a very big uh, deck of talent. Right. So I... Um, I did the bike ride and, and I finished and I was up fairly high. I think I was third or fourth off the bike. And I just kind of sat there for a minute. I said, you know, my knee feels pretty good. So I uh, ran over my car. And at that time I didn't wear bike cleats. I, I don't know what shoe I was wearing. It was just a, uh, a running shoe, but I felt that I had some better shoes in the car and I opened up the trunk. This is my transition <laughs> and uh, pulled, pulled these shoes out. I, I know I'd gone river rafting in them. So I think they had a lot of pebbles in them. Uh, put them on, and the the run was uh, roughly about four miles, about seven kilometers. And I could see the my uh, opposition, and and a green light went on. Like I, I've got to beat these guys. The last leg was the swim, and uh, there was no calibration on the swim, but I'd say it was around twelve hundred meters in the uh, open bay called Aquatic Cove. And again, no wetsuits. I swam about a hundred meters offshore, and there was a uh, one of the leaders. Uh, was kind of wrapped around the chain from one of the ships that was moored in the bay. Uh-huh. And I, you know, like even today, I feel it seems like my comment was kind of harsh, which I'll share with you. So I, I got up next to him and I said, are you okay? But I didn't really listen for his response. And 
<laughs> he said cramp. <laughs> I said, uh, I think I said, okay, <laughs> that seems all right. <laughs> I'm sure you can paddle back to shore. So I ended up passing him, and I have no idea where I caught the other uh, couple guys. But I ended up uh, winning that uh, real illustrious race <laughs> as my <laughs> debut in triathlon. And in the States, that's our Thanksgiving time, which is right around the corner. And the tradition is to eat turkey. So I, I won a frozen turkey as my first prize. <laughs> my way. This, is, this is amazing. That is some debut. Anyway, I should probably take a breath. That was the, the start of my sort of triathlon career. But the, the sport really didn't have a name. Right. As all of you know, the Ironman originated in, in 78. And I was out there for in Kona celebrating the 40th year of the event. I did it, uh, Charles, as you mentioned, in 1980. And the first three years were in Oahu. You could hardly be claimed the world champion. The first year, there was 12 people. The second year in 79, there were 25. And the year I did it in 80, there were 108 people, uh, including, uh, I think there was uh, nine or 10 women that did it mm -hmm. in 1980. Wow. So, so for most of the going into it, it was... Um, they just wanted to survive. And I kept thinking, you know, I, I'm pretty manic about my exercise routine. And I thought, well, I'm just going to go as hard as I can, but I'm going to race this thing. And I think my mindset, and I, you know, of course, have talked to a lot of my fellow competitors in that initial race. And they said, yeah, we just wanted to get through it, but you wanted to race it. <laughs> and I said, absolutely. So, so, so uh, I, I, sorry to cut you off. Go, um, so let's just go back a little bit again. So, you know, you did all these other sports. What made you want to stick with triathlon? Was it just that the winning of the first event that got you motivated to do that? Or like you said, you know, you made progress in running that you hadn't done in water polo. What was it that made you stick with triathlon? Well, it, it certainly wasn't winning. And, and really, winning wasn't really my motivation, mm -hmm. even at the early outset when I first did Ironman. But going going way back, I guess my... <laughs> So, sort of compulsive behavior, which drove me to a certain level that I was able to do, you know, fairly decently in, in triathlons later on. But it, as I mentioned, it kind of drove me under the truck early on as I worked real hard and I took my teammates along with me. And if they weren't working hard, that was a real blemish in my eyes. And, and I seemed to develop a, a knack or inner passion to push myself to this crazy level and, and, you know, again, recognizing it as a coach, it was actually too much. Uh, but I developed this desire early on. It was, well, even before I went to high school, I had it throughout college. And then when I got out of college and started doing these multi events and the taste of this first triathlon, which I just described in 76, it wasn't about the win at all. It was just about, I know I can get a lot faster in this. Yep. And I hope I have an opportunity to do another one. Hmm. Do you think it sort of appealed to the fact that you're really a great generalist? I mean, you've done so many sports and, you know, bringing several of them together gave you a, a real chance to excel. Uh, I, I think to some degree, Robin, I, ironically, I'm, I'm speaking to um, student athletes uh, in town here at high school and also their parents this next week. And they've asked me to talk about, you know, a little bit about my background. I, um, I also had three kids. I had two boys that were high school and then college athletes as well. And, and some, some of you that followed my middle son, he was a professional triathlete for five years. Mm -hmm. um, so I did experience that. 
I had a, uh, an early life, as I mentioned, and I did a lot of sports and, and we would just move from one season to the next. And so uh, I was fairly ambidextrous. I picked up water polo pretty quickly. And that really was probably my best, best sport uh, through high school and college by far. It superseded my swim ability. Uh, and I think I just had a, um, you know, a, a good, well-rounded background athletically which I still think is paramount for a lot of kids today and not being a, a single sports specialist. And I, and I see this a lot. I have a daughter as well. And she was kind of pigeonholed into soccer when she was 10 years old. And I said, you know, golly, this is a year round sport. I said, this is nonsense. Uh, you know, hmm. out of this group, what's a percentage that's going to be able to play at the collegiate level. And what's the percentage after that, that may have the, uh, vision and the opportunity and the skill set to be a professional. I said, it's very, very small. And I said, this is r really silly. So I kind of opened the door. My, I guess my parents did. So I was a, a, a jack of all trades. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, I, I was reading an article wherein you were talking about just your pure love for exercise, you know, and you said something on the lines of that exercise is a huge and powerful drug that rules your life. And when you don't get it, it makes you go haywire. So could you just expand on that statement a little bit more? And like, because I, I just, I was intrigued by it because of your choice of words, you know, they were pretty strong words conveying some really strong emotions and like an obsession towards exercise. Everything you said, Swapnell, is absolutely true. And I'll elaborate a little bit on it. Um, the obsessive part, your last word. What really what really drove me was that I finally realized, and this took a long, long time, I, all the way through my six wins, I was on this incredible um, emotional and mental psychological roller coaster, and it affected me because it was really all or nothing. It was the you know the Dave Scott mantra was if I couldn't do it at this level, then almost like an alcoholic, drink more. And the converse of this, as an athlete, was don't do it. And people look at that and say, well, that doesn't make sense. Why didn't you just go out and exercise? If I couldn't run an hour and 20 minutes, was an hour adequate or was 40 minutes adequate? And I'd say no. And so it was sort of a self-inflicting punishment. Not only would I, my physical state begin to decline, but mentally it stymied me. It stifled me. It stopped me in my tracks. And I, I finally got to the point after many years of this roller coaster uh emotional high from exercising not winning but from exercising uh and a lot of it by myself to not doing it for periods sometimes three days four days i had a 21 day period where i didn't exercise it's the longest i've ever had and i kind of got to the end of each of these periods where i said this is so destructive for my soul for myself uh, certainly as a mentor or coach, you know, I didn't want to admit this. Um, and I, I don't have any trouble now because I think a lot of athletes put this layer of pressure on themselves for performance. I had to come back and just say, you know, what makes me feel good? The simplicity of what makes me feel good. And I followed this for uh, certainly over the last uh, almost 30 years is a little bit of exercise releases this morphine-like effect, and I get this endorphin high. Everyone knows about it. It makes you feel satiated. And mentally for me, and I have a very steadfast rule, and Robin, you probably heard this when I was coaching team and training, because I'm indirectly talking about myself, 
if you have 20 minutes and you've cut it down from an hour and a half to an hour to 40 minutes, but you have 20 minutes, don't procrastinate, go do it. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the most difficult thing for athletes to, to recognize is that, oh, gee, does that really give me a return? Probably in the last two or three minutes of that 20 minutes, you're going to feel a heck of a lot better. And certainly when you finish or take a shower or put your clothes back on, you feel like the world is open and you're not in a dark box. And I, I went in this dark box many, many, many times. Scary. Hmm. Yeah, I think that's a great inspiration for athletes out there because I think you're right. Too many of us feel like we can't do it if we're not doing it all the way or the whole time or at the intensity that we think we should be. Yeah. Yeah, it's a it's a real, you know, real dilemma, and it's something that I, obviously I apply in my coaching practice. And I've got this new program, membership program, this Dave Scott Tri Club program, which is uh, really kind of offers my philosophy. That's the, that's the crux of it. That's the bottom part of it. But the other side of it, and Robbie, you just said it, is that physiologically we get huge adaptation, uh, not only for our brain muscles. Uh, inflammation by inserting higher intensity pieces. And the destructive part is to think that more is better. And and a lot of the triathletes follow this. Yeah, every weekend I'm going to do a long run and a long ride or a brick or whatever. And that's kind of been the the, the statement for years and years and years. And and, and really, if if we look closely at the physiology, we ought to be looking at what's the minimum amount of time that makes me feel good. And I really reap the benefits. So uh, the the aging curve is negated. My heart is in good sh- shape. My organs are in, in good shape, and I'm really resilient and rebounding and aging slowly, and not putting this physiological or psychological uh, anvil in my back pocket. Did the concept of periodization come as kind of a big revelation to you, or had you already sort of discovered that when that came along in athletic literature? Well, periodization has been around a long time. And if, and if, I, if we ask 30 people, what does that mean? It, it just means that you're developing different cycles of training and different rhythms of training with different emphasis. And the periodization, uh, it, you know, can you, know, you can look at it quarterly, you can look at it at a six-week basis. I do six weeks, what I call microcycles. And then you kind of look at each week and, and each day. So there's got to be a rhyme and a reason for it. Uh, again, I think a lot of the periodization that people look at is that when they have more time or when the weather is nice, then I'm going to do more. And, uh, and I've seen this many, many, many years that a lot of the athletes would come to the end of the end of the season. And certainly in Ironman and Kona, which is, you know, still the, the, the big apple in the sport, like, well, I want to win that race. A lot of the men and women, more men are decimated because of the toll that it takes on them. And, and, and I hear about these extraordinary feats of what they think is going to enhance my capillary density and aerobic enzymes and red blood volume and mitochondria and all the physiological things that you can break down by doing more. And as they get close to the big race, they do more. Well, that's actually a destructive thing for your physiology. So Robin, and in trying to answer your question, periodization is there. I, I think a lot of uh, coaches and athletes are pretty myopic on how to put the recipe together. Hmm. I, I just want to get back to your journey for a little while longer. Sure. Because, you know, I'm just really curious about what makes, you know, a six-time world champ. So I think one thing that I believe 
makes a professional or the best of the best stand out from everyone else is how they handle the low points in their lives and careers. So what were some of your low points for you and how did you overcome them? Well, Swamnal, I just kind of alluded to some of the low points and I can, um, I'll recall one, one period. Uh, one of my closest friends, his name is Mike, and he had seen all these ups and downs through the years and kind of been my psychological mentor and also my, my training partner. He's a physician by trade. And so he would come over on the weekends and I would beat him up and then, you know, we'd have a great time and <laughs> he would sort of reinforce my psychological pillar when he <laughs> at times and we got close to the um the 89 race and i my first child was born in august i barely was able to finish iron man at japan and and had gone 801 or 802 i don't even remember then got on the plane came back and my wife at the time uh, had ryan first son uh, early august and sort of at that point with Hawaii looming around the corner, not too many people know this, and it certainly is not an excuse for the outcome of the race. Um, I just said, well, I want to be there uh, with my child and my, and my wife. And I, and I thought, this is great. You know, like, boy, this little thing is really animated and <laughs> didn't really do much in the first six weeks. If you have a kid, they just kind of lay there and <laughs> eat and, uh, and do their thing. Uh, but I was totally fascinated by it. And, and I, I remember we were just – uh, outside of a, a month from Ironman Kona in 1989, and, and Mike said, Dave, you know, you're you, you barely exercising <laughs> since you did Ironman Japan, and you have a big race coming up, and you've won the thing six times. You know, why don't you win at seven, but you better exercise? And he, he was pretty cynical and sarcastic like myself. And, and you know, I kind of listened to his, his words. So that particular moment i said you know gee, i've really got to step i've really got to step it up and i've always looked at um you know training for the race was just an opportunity to heighten heighten myself as, as an athlete I, I wasn't driven by oh gee all the best athletes in the world are going to be there and and my arch rival mark allen's going to be there i got to beat him that was never in my mind. I was certainly keenly aware and very respectful of their ability, but it was how far could I push myself? Because I, I always like to dictate the pace and the tempo and have everyone's eyes on, on me. Hmm. But in these low points, Swap, now to get back to your, your question, I had uh, every year, I had um, um, many, many, many periods where I'd have these three to five days and at that time, I was eating a staggering amount of carbohydrates, which really affects your brain because you have this gut-brain connection with your vagus nerve. And, and, and I know that in eating an excessive amount, that it was really triggering a lot of inflammatory responses. And it kind of set my mood in this, as I said, this deep, dark, black box. Right. To get myself out of it, I would play this game. And... I said, I know in five days from right now, and I feel just absolutely in the depths of despair, in five days, I can feel a lot better. And I would basically kind of hide from everyone. I had difficulty communicating with people, just even carrying out a conversation. Uh, if someone wanted to do an interview, interview with me or a podcast, I said, no, I can't. I just can't do it. 
because it, it just stymied my brain so badly that I, I couldn't speak in a positive note. Hmm. Because what weighed me down was that I was grossly out of shape. I've let myself down and now I've got to pull myself out of this. And I did this over and over and over again. And, I, and I've shared this that uh, in a more simplistic looking way, when people are injured or you've got stress in your family and you've had eight to 10 days or two weeks off, I said, just give yourself that five-day period. And you start getting some nice adaptation. You start feeling fluid like you're an athlete again. And all of a sudden, your, your, your mental game can really come around. And I've really have adhered to that, but I've adhered to this, just get in 20 minutes mm. uh, because I know that makes me feel better. And it doesn't mean that I don't have a day off, which I did yesterday. Uh, but then I rebound quickly and say, okay, sort of the Dave Scott all or nothing thing. What can I do today <laughs> to dig myself out of that? And I don't really feel that, you know, I'm, I'll be 65 in a couple of months. Is it like, who, who am I, who am I impressing? It's just me again. So I can go back to when I was 25. I still have the same mindset, but I don't have these deep valleys that I fell into. Hmm. Does it feel like a lot of pressure just being Dave Scott? Because and there's never a moment when you're not watched, I guess. Like you can't just go out and, oh, hey, I'll do a sprint try next weekend just for the fun of it. Uh, uh, I'm watched, Robin. That's right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm kind of watched. Uh, yeah, there are times when, uh, you know, I don't want to be in front of the crowd. I want to be in the crowd. And I just want to kind of meld into the <laughs> cube of butter. Um <laughs> I, yeah, that's kind of a strange thing, but it's also ego, I think. And I, and, you know, I've, I'm pretty self-deprecating and I've always been that way. I, I, I think that there's, there's times where you think, well, what, where's my ego? Why do I have an ego? And there's no ego at all. And I, I have lost a little bit of my athletic cockiness and the cockiness is all in, inside. It's, it's all me. So when I walk out of the pool deck, I just, just swam uh, just about uh, two hours ago and I, and I swim with the group. And when I'm in the pool, you know, I'm looking over three or four lanes. I can play these mind games that are just befuddling to people. You know, I'll see someone who's, you know, just a kind of a lonely swimmer, barely moving. I'm going to say, gee, I hope I can lap this person in, you know, X amount of time, <laughs> or I hope I can hold off those fast guys. You know, the interval's really tight. I'm just going to be touching and going, but I'm not going to give up. I'm, I'm, completely relentless, totally manic, like I've always been. And, and I, you know, I, I've had this, it's not that, you know, I have to beat them because I can't. And I, uh, in a lot of cases now, it's just the game that I always play inside. Like how far can I push myself? But um, I, I've had a, I'll just throw this out. I, I have kind of an internal governor that hit me about three years ago and developed an arrhythmia and heart arrhythmia, which is very prevalent. And it's a topic that I had slides on, I was giving lectures to, I said, well, that's not me. That will never happen to me. And, and the incidence with runners and cyclists and triathletes, Nordic skiers is off the chart, particularly males, less, a lot less with females. So hmm. that governor that I've had, even I had an ablation to take care of the flutter, but I still have the fib. I can't walk into that pool and say, I'm gonna, I'm gonna beat you today because there's some days where I think, oh boy, I feel like I'm swimming in molasses, not water. You mentioned your relentless, you know, intensity and 
this this manic nature of yours of training and racing so do you did you or do you still bring that same intensity to other areas of your life and like how how does that work for you <laughs> uh yes i do a quick answer and i and i do it at some degrees to a fault um is it the right thing? To it, it's interesting because you know that's that's the reason you won those six titles and everything <laughs> done. But like you know, that's what I see, and you know the top one percent of the one percent, like from my eyes, like they have this quality or characteristic that allows them to be that great at their craft. But usually, it's that same quality that can lead to negative consequences in like other areas of their life. You're, you're very articulate on that, Swapnil. I appreciate your uh, verbiage on that. <laughs> yeah, that's, uh, that, that's exactly right. Because uh, even with my Dave Scott Tri Club, I want things right. And when they're not right, and when there's not order to it, and maybe the timeliness to it, and the quality to it, it bothers me. And in working with other people, which I, which I do, I have to be cognizant of how they work as well. And, and I've always felt as though I have, I'm a good reader psychologically with other people. And I think that part of it, um, which we can talk about the coaching part, uh, I, I recognize that. But it comes when it comes back to me, I, uh, <laughs> I've had trouble sleeping for a long time. And part of the sleep issues, and, and I can give a lecture on sleeping, uh, I've tried lots of different things and <laughs> don't eat that. Don't, don't do this and make sure you turn off your computer and on and on and on. Try melatonin and all the other uh, herbal uh, <laughs> potent uh, her herbal things that you can take. So I have tried that, but when my mind wakes up in the middle of the night, I can come to a level of alertness because I feel like I need to do this this is coming up or I have to do that better. Hmm. And it's, you know, it's kind of been a lifelong adult problem that it manifests in the same way as I was an athlete where I could really control it. And I had a finite finish to it. Sometimes the things that I do business wise now, they don't have an end to them, at least in my eyes. Hmm. So, uh, yeah. My kids always remind me, uh, hey, dad, you better slow down. <laughs> <laughs> oh, really? Why, why is that? So everyone who knows me, they, you know, they see the same kind of behavior I had when I was six-time Ironman champion. And is that a good thing? Well, I, I was able to win that race, but I, I'd like to, you know, be able to, uh, I don't know, uh, smell the daisies. I guess it's kind of a trite saying, but I... I don't know if that's in me or not to be at that level because people say, well, how long are you going to work? And I say, well, I, I wasn't Michael Jordan that made a lot of money off Nike shoes. I'm grateful for my Hoka sponsorship, but it's not in the stature of Michael Jordan's <laughs> Nike. <laughs> so, uh, and, and really the, the, the wins that I had in Ironman, people think, well, that was amazing. That was remarkable. You did it every year. The, the first four wins that I had, I, I got a t-shirt. I paid for my way over there. I paid for my condo. I'd usually bring a friend. I was married at the time. 
it's a costly endeavor. And I'd finished the race. And of course, the race directors would say, gee, you did great, Dave. You won the thing. Hopefully, you'll come back next year. And I said, yeah, I'll, yeah, I'll be back next year. But financially, there wasn't a big check like uh, Danielle Reef has picked up, the, the sponsors that are attached to it. That wasn't my driving force. Finally, someone on the island who lives there, I think he felt bad for us because we're working so darn hard and they knew a little bit of my history. The, the fifth year that I won was 1986 and uh, this local put up uh, $8,000. So I got $8,000 wow. from this guy. And I, I was forever grateful. And, and then he, same thing the next year, he put up 10000 and I won in 87. I said, this is amazing. I, I'm getting all this money. I thought I was a wealthy man. So, <laughs> Uh, the driving factor, again, I, I can ramble on forever. The driving factor for me was, was always inside of me. And I didn't have a team. I didn't have a club. I had my buddy Mike that would come over. I, I trained by myself and I developed this knack. And I even did this in high school and college because no one wanted to, no one wanted to be with me. Uh, the coach, you know, I was a coach's dream because I just drive myself into submission. And he thought that the coach thought this was really great, but, um, <laughs> That's not the way to develop a proper training program. My mind, my mind just said, keep doing it. And I, and I, to this day, even with the heart issue that I have, I love playing the game. Uh, and I take my, I do these higher intensity pieces. I did today. Um, I actually ran, I don't like to admit this. I didn't even tell my swim, I was coaching them today, but I, I ran this morning because people ask, well, you know, what'd you do today? Dave and Robin, for your question, you know, that people kind of want to know. And I just said, oh, not much. Um, <laughs> but since we're on the podcast, I'm going to tell the three of you. Uh, I, I ran for 70 minutes and I uh, did a, about eight 40 second pieces that were harder by my <laughs> ability at the moment. Uh, that's a long run for me now, 70 minutes. And then uh, the temperature here today, this morning, was about um, minus three degrees centigrade. It was 25 degrees Fahrenheit or so, 26. So it was darn cold. The water's freezing, and I rode after that. And I told, told a buddy who I ride with, he said, well, we need to ride this weekend. The weather will be warmer. And I said, I rode today. He goes, you didn't. <laughs> and I said, I did. And he looked at me and he said, yeah, I knew you did. And... <laughs> So I I do a little loop and it has about about 500 meters of climbing, about 1600 feet of climbing. And that took about an hour 20, and then I uh, I swam 2k. So that's kind of what I did today. Before I'm chatting with you, still driven. Impressive. Absolutely. <laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> so I have a I have a follow up question on your insomnia thing because as a lifetime insomniac, I, I totally feel that pain when you train so intensely for the Ironman, does it quell it? Does it make it go away? Uh, yes and no. Uh, you know, there's a, there's a certain level of satiation in feeling confident about where I was exercising and, and that would allow me to relax. And so uh, when I was just, I'll say I was just an athlete, but I was always doing consulting as a coach. I never thought this was a career. And you know, I always had this sideline of, well, I better do this because I'm going to run out of this triathlon business and it doesn't pay very well. <laughs> but when I was really focusing, particularly at the end of the year for, for Ironman, I would sleep okay, not great. And um, the, what really unraveled me were, you know, demands to do different things with the organization or with sponsors or with the media. 
And it was always difficult for me to say no. And to this day, it's difficult for me to say no. And, and so I, I would feel like, gosh, I, I, I've got to uphold this agreement because they ask if I could do a 90 minute podcast. So I better do that. <laughs> um, I'm just kidding. Well, we're grateful for that impulse. We'll just say that. <laughs> I'm not, I'm not going to win the championship next year. So <laughs> got a lot of time. Uh, yeah, that, um, the insomnia wasn't, wasn't as bad, but I, I know coming back when I was, um, 40, I had, had, there was a five year kind of a hiatus. I had some injuries and I raced Mark when I was 35, that was 1989. And, and that was 1994. And I, and I'd really decided early on in 93 that I was going to come back and do Ironman again two boys. <laughs> My second one was born. So uh, I, I was a fairly light sleeper and, and uh, they weren't very good sleepers. And so that would throw me off a little bit. So I seemingly was waking up with them and, and walking downstairs and saying, you know, on to wrap them in the head and say, don't keep waking me up. But it, they, they did. <laughs> uh, so th that kind of tr triggered me. And I remember in 94, I sort of went into the race, maybe not as fresh as I could have been, but, um, you know, I had a, had a great day. It's sort of an understatement, but we'll let it slide. Yeah. <laughs> I didn't really answer your sleeping thing, Robin, but it, it's been, it's been difficult. And again, I, I have tried lots of different potions and, and what to avoid and what to do. And, and I just can't stop my mind, uh, from really work related things now. Hmm. I just wanted to make a quick, a quick comment back to that thing, uh, David, you were talking about you were so driven you couldn't stop this thing inside of you even though it was so hard you know, financially speaking to go to Kona every year because of all the oh obviously it's, it's an expensive endeavor uh and uh, i just want to compare that nowadays on the ironman races you know people sort of celebrate the fact that oh we, we beat a record you no know, like the five minutes less than last year oh that's great fantastic this is the best guy in the world but I'm not sure if someone has realized uh, how important was that 1980 uh, Ironman World Championship race and how your, that drive of yours actually showed there. Because even though there, so the race had been going on for two years already, you know, 78, 79. And uh, the winners of those races, I think the, the times that they made were like something like 11 hours and something. And suddenly you come in on 1980, you win the race right the first time and you do two hours less than the guy the year before and the guy who comes second actually does one hour more than you so it's, it's like almost like no one was expecting this thing to happen and then you see the results of the Ironman World Championship from 81 onwards and it's like it's almost like you've set the new bar no like that sort of drive that you have is actually has created the you can call it the, the future of the of the, of the sport well it's yeah i guess i i always looked at the end of the race and probably a very quick assessment when i'm in the in the corral by the finish line and and the, the years that i won and of course there's lots of accolades and cameras clicking and shortly after that i i mean right there i'm thinking yeah i could have gone faster <laughs> and, uh, i could have gone a little bit harder and i could have made up time here and so i'm already kind of plotting you know, the next year not really savoring that that moment i'll share a, a story with chrissy wellington here in just a second so 
Uh, you know, I think going back to 1980, I, I was now out of college, but I was still trained very hard. So I went into that race with I what I felt was decent preparation, but I was naive like everyone else. I had to, what what kind of preparation? I don't have no idea. I bought a a real cool bike at the time, uh, <laughs> Raleigh Professional, and that's the only bike that I've kept over the years. Uh, it's actually in the Boulder Museum right now, but I had it hanging hanging in my office, and I thought, well, gee, I'm riding a really fast bike. This thing is fast. I can tell it's fast. I didn't have a bike shoe until October, which was three months before the January race in 1980. I never had ridden with that. All of you will not, will not remember this unless you look back at vintage bikes. The original cleats on the bikes had a little slit, a metal slit. There was a, The shoe had a little sliding slot that you would press your foot onto the slot, take the leather belt and cinch it down so that it would stop the blood flow, and that would keep your foot on the pedal. That sounds awesome. Oh, I'm old enough to remember that, Dave. Uh, just dreadful. <laughs> and, I, I, and I'm old enough to remember falling over when you forgot to forgot to release that little leather strap. <laughs> that's, that's exactly right. So, <laughs> you know, winning, uh, Charles, winning in ni- 1980, you know, to be classified as a world champion, hardly. Um, it was obviously a race that was just for a few misfits in the States. And and it was just, it was really an opportunity for me to say, wow, I think this might be my niche because I could go a long time and I could wear out people uh, in my experience in high school and college and post-college. They just couldn't hang with me if I wanted to work out longer and harder. No one could do it. I didn't have a big pool of of people to pick from. And I said, this this race is going to take a long time. But, But I never said, even in that first year in 1980, that oh I'm going to die somewhere in this race I'm going to really run out of gas I just said well I'm going to I'm going to do this hard the entire time the ensuing years after that I said you know I I know I can go quite a bit faster and I'll jump way ahead to 1989 uh, there was a press conference before the race and Mark was at the press conference as well all the all the seated athletes or pro athletes at the time were at this press conference and. Someone asked, they said, Dave, what do you think you're capable of doing? And at the time, I, I think I had gone 824. I don't even remember prior to that or 828 or something like that. And I, I it was very funny because Mark and I didn't talk about this for about 10 years after that 89 race. <laughs> I, you know, I'm, I'm like a metronome. I'm like a, a clock in the swim. I, I've had 5021 or 5022 in the swim. I said, well, I, my swimming is, is, Solid. I think I can, you know, I was going to shave off a little more 50 minutes, low 50 minutes, you know, I was really precise. And then on the, uh, on the bike, I said, well, I, I, uh, at that time, the barometer on the bike was nowhere what the guys are riding now and the women that are riding now that, you know, the bike technology obviously is somewhat attributed to that, or I say greatly attributed to that. Uh, and I said, uh, you know, I think I can ride, uh, 25 miles an hour, 40 K an hour. And that would be around 436. And I thought, well, that that's that's certainly doable. Well, how about your run? And I said, oh, I can run six minute pace or three forty five k. I can run two thirty seven, and two thirty seven thirty. And I think all the pros except Mark. Mark had to sleep on it one night. <laughs> I think all the pros just said, that's it. I'm out of the game. Dave's got. To do it. And, I, and I didn't say it, you know, arrogantly. I just, you know, I had a I had a 
straightforward question. What do you think you're capable of? Uh, and of course, the reporters that were there, they're doing the math. And they said, do you realize how fast that is? And I said, I don't think so. I, how, what is that? <laughs> I mean, I'm pretty good with jock math. I could add it up. And um, uh, I think Mark, you know, realized and recognized that to win, he had to, he had to play my game. And, uh, you know, we had, we had this battle. So, but I never went into that race saying, you know, I think Mark is going to swim 49. He's going to ride 430 and he'll outrun me on the run. And I see this a lot with the athletes today. I think I'm always asked this. I don't like this. I don't like making predictions. And I, and now I kind of got to the point where I refuse to do this because I think it's a discredit to the athletes. I'm asked who, who are the favorites in this race? Kona Ironman. And I do recognize the ones quietly that don't have the innate ability to win. And they're surviving on the bike and they have no confidence in their run. And I've seen this over and over and over and over in the years that I've not competed. And I said, there's only a small handful of men and a small handful of women that really know how to win. And whatever that little marble is, it's got to come from their mindset to, to do that. And I'll just share this one story with Chrissy and I'll, I'll stop talking here. Uh, I, I had the privilege of coaching uh, Chrissy for four years and it did very quietly. No one even knew about it for about a year and a half. Uh, she had gone through a few coaches and, and wasn't happy. And she said, can we just, you know, work together? And I said, yeah, absolutely. I don't need to announce that I'm coaching, you know, the greatest, the greatest iron man, iron person <laughs> ever. And I think Chrissy is, she supersedes all the, all the men and the women. She was extraordinary. And she was already a good athlete when I got her. Uh, I was actually covering the race uh, on TV and, and all of a sudden Chrissy Wellington, I kept mispronouncing her name. I didn't know if it was Christine or Chrisella or whatever. And people kept correcting me and they said, <laughs> Oh, that's Chrissy Wellington. I said, Oh gosh, who's she in coaching her? She got better and better. And, you know, her, she never really had her best race over in, in Ironman, Kona. Her best race was in Roth. And she had broke the, she had broke her record and just smashed it. She went eight, eight hours and 19 minutes. And, and then she, I didn't go over there with her the next year. And, and she said, Dave, I feel so much pressure. And this was really pressure by the media and everyone else. When you're kind of in that bubble, Chrissy, are you going to break your world record? Well, the conditions have to be pretty darn good to break a world record. And I said, Chrissy, that, you know, that's, that's irrelevant. I said, the, the relevancy of this race is to extract out the, the best possible race you can. We can't mandate what the conditions are going to be like or the, the race scenario. I just, just, you know, give it your best. Mm. I said that, but at the same time, I said, well, I, I, you know, I know she put the, the fear of God in all the men that she was racing. And when Chrissy would step up the starting line, they're going, oh, my gosh, I don't want to get beat by this woman. And she clobbered a lot of the best men. <laughs> so I'm looking at the splits. I'm online. The race starts. She has her a, a best swim ever. On the bike, I said, well, she should be at such and such a point at uh, 50K, at 90K. And, and she'd fallen off a little bit. And I said, gosh, you know, her, her cycling leg, a little bit, little bit slower than what I had anticipated based on the men's, the leaders that were ahead of her. One of the things that we had worked on was trying to get her, her cadence up because she inherently pushed a really massive gear. 
And in all of her marathons off the bike, she would quite often go 122 or 123 going out in the first 21K, 13 miles. And then she would come back in 129 or one to 131. So it was a huge drop off. And I, I felt is that she was loading her legs too much and, and her, these fast twitch 2A fibers were just getting shot. So we kind of brought that up. And so I said, well, now you got off the bike, you're going to be able to run fast and you're going to even split this race. So go after it on the run. And I'm saying this as I'm in Colorado and she's in Germany. She finishes the race and the, she breaks through her world record by less than a, a minute. She goes eight hours and 18 minutes. I think I'm accurate on this. I said, Christy, when you can call me when you finish the race. And it was really call me regardless of how you do. And, you know, I, I felt like, you know, she's going to have a great day. I, you know, she had a great buildup. So she's in the finish line era. This is probably 15 minutes after the race. And she calls. And the first thing that she says to me, and I can hear the, the pandemonium in the background with the crowd still. She said to me, oh, Dave, my, uh, my, my cycling leg was a little bit slow. <laughs> and I just, you know, I wanted to, I wanted to reach through the telephone line and, and, uh, you know, wring her neck. And I said, I said, Chrissy, you just broke the world record. Would you <laughs> drop that statement? And, um, and I, and I think the reason I brought it up, it kind of parallels a, a little bit of, of maybe my mindset as well. Is yeah. You always think that you can do a little bit better. And I just said, savor this victory. And I, and I think that's, uh, something that maybe I should have looked in the mirror and told myself. Mm, that's an amazing story. I love how you have such a good memory. I mean, you you go into such detail. <laughs> and this is from like years ago. So, uh, well, you, you all of you aren't the first ones that have asked me this question. So I'm question. It is it is pretty vivid. I mean, it is you know, and I remember little tiny things in the races that, you know, I have shared some that I have not shared and, and those kind of percolate back up. <laughs> Love it. Okay. So, you know, before we kind of switch gears here and get into more of your coaching philosophies and such, um, I've actually prepared a sort of rapid fire round here. Uh, we haven't really done this on the show before, but since we had a special guest, it will only be right to add something a little extra to the show. So, we're going to put you on the spot here and there are all different types of questions in the mix. And all you've got to do is complete the sentences or answer the questions as quick as you can with short and sharp answers. Oh, wow. It sounds like a game show or something. <laughs> I'm not very good at being short and concise, but I'll do my darndest. All right, let's go. So do you hate losing more than you love winning or vice versa? Hey everyone. So that was part one of our conversation with Dave Scott. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed that. And the next part, which is part two, will be coming out next week. So make sure you subscribe to the show so you don't miss that when it comes out. And if you've been enjoying the hot podcast so far, it would mean so much to us if you could leave the show a positive review on whatever platform you're listening on, because your review helps us and helps the show be found by and reach more people like yourself. So we'd really appreciate it if you could just head straight on over to the review section of the podcast player, whether that be iTunes or whatever app you're listening on, and take that minute to leave the show review. And finally, thank you all for being a part of this amazing community. If you haven't already, you can find and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Strava at Humans of Triathlon. Alright, that's it from us for this week, and we'll see you all next week. So until then, everyone, keep trying.